0: In this Democratic convention of 1972, the Democratic Party is proud to nominate as the presidential candidate from the great state of South Dakota, George McGovern. And as his running mate, a man of loyalty and sound mind, a man there could be no issues with whatsoever, from the great state of Missouri, Senator Thomas Eagleton. Wait, I think I may have spoken too soon. Okie dokie. After 18 days, we're removing Senator Eagleton from the ballot, and will mental health shame him until he goes into obscurity? Does anyone else want to nominate anyone of loyalty and good judgment? I nominate Ted Kennedy. Oh, God, Ted, get out of here. The resignation of Thomas Eagleton this week on This Was A Thing.
1: This was a thing, this was a thing, this was a thing Do you remember Patty vs.
2: Kidnapping? This was a thing, pretty much Atari Deep Throat Roots and Ted Bundy Hanoi Jane, Celebrity Bowling That was a thing Bobby Fischer, Blackouts, Benny and Paul and Danny and Marie, Rich Little and Billy. Jane. Hi, I'm Ray. And I'm Rob. And you're listening to This Was a Thing, the podcast that dives deep into the cultural happenings of yesteryear.
0: And on this week's episode, we are talking about Thomas Eagleton or the Thomas Eagleton affair. Now, this was a thing because it mandated background checks on those running for higher offices. And it made Americans openly debate what part of a candidate's life is private and what is public. If you're a political junkie and you think of 1972, the scandal that most likely comes to mind is the break-in at the Watergate Hotel, a scandal that toppled the presidency of Richard Nixon. Had that crime not been committed then, we most likely would say the biggest scandal of 1972 was a man named Thomas Eagleton, who might have been our vice president had his past not emerged. What was his great sin that forced him to leave the ticket? Well, let's find out on this week's This Was a Thing. All right, folks. So if you remember from our one of my favorite episodes, which was the 25th Amendment, the <laughs> role of the vice president. I love the 20th. OK, once again, folks, I majored in political science. Thank you. Precursor. And I never get to use this. I feel like the guy in SNL who's like the guy who bought a boat. <laughs> it's like, well, actually, the electorate works this way. Um, so one of my favorites was the, the, uh, the death of William Henry Harrison. Because when John Tyler took over, nobody really knew if John Tyler had taken over because apparently the Constitution wasn't clear enough. So the thing about the vice presidency is nobody really even – thinks about it. In fact, one former vice president said the vice presidency isn't worth a warm bucket of spit. Uh, I'm sure there was another word used, but uh, we'll just say spit. Now, the vice presidency it used to be, up until Al Gore or so, used to be mostly a ceremonial position. It was a position nobody even really wanted. In the, and even presidential candidates at the last second were like, oh, we should probably pick a vice president. A lot of vice presidential candidates did not meet the presidential candidate until they were at the stage together at the convention. Oh, perfect. And in 1968, because we're going to talk today about the 72 election, in the 1968 election, there were two former vice presidents that were competing with one another for the presidency. One of them was Richard Nixon for the Republican side. He was vice president under Eisenhower and Hubert Humphrey, who was currently the vice president under Lyndon Johnson. So Nixon Agnew was one ticket. And then Humphrey Muskie, that's a name, You got a great musky there. Uh, (laughs) So let's talk a little bit about Richard Nixon's first term in office. We think now of Watergate, so we kind of forget what he actually was able to accomplish. And his first term was incredibly productive, especially in the fact that he was able to talk with both Russia and China, which people had thought was impossible at that point. Therefore, he was pretty much a shoe in to not only win the nomination again for the Republican Party in 72, but also to win the presidency. So in 1968, like I was saying, Nixon had won, and it was very clear that, okay, that the next presidential candidate in 1972 for the Democrats was most likely going to be Ted Kennedy. He was John Kennedy's brother. Uh, Robert Kennedy had been assassinated in 68. Next in line. It really was a next in line thing, except for the fact Chappaquiddick. And for those of you who don't know, I'm sure we'll do an episode on Chappaquiddick at some point, but Senator Ted Kennedy... Got into a car accident in which there was a young lady in his car. The car went off a bridge. The lady drowned and died, and Ted Kennedy didn't go get help for quite some time. So, needless to say, that kind of ended his political career, or so you would think. Now, because Ted Kennedy was out of the race, Who could really compete against Nixon? Well, there were four people who came to the forefront. One of them was Hubert Humphrey, who would run in 68. He was the former vice president. There was a woman named Shirley Chisholm, who was the first black female congresswoman. There's a movie about her now. A guy from South Dakota, a senator named George McGovern. And the person that just about every single Democrat was getting behind because they felt he had the best chance of beating Richard Nixon. And his name was Edmund Muskie, Senator Muskie from Maine. Muskie was doing really, really great, getting the endorsements of just about everybody until right before the New Hampshire primary. A letter was published in the Manchester Union Leader, and this letter has now since come to be known as the Canuck Letter. The Canuck letter. You can't go Manchester Union Union leader leader. anymore. (laughs) No, you really can't. In the quote unquote Canuck letter, the letter was sent to the newspaper saying, hey, listen, I have information that Edmund Muskie pretty much shat all over French Canadians, (laughs) which made up a very large population of New England at the time. Then the paper also said, oh, by the way, his wife, Jane, uh, she's a drinker and she uses real foul language. (laughs) And Muskie did not take too kindly to this, so he had a press conference outside of the Manchester Union leader offices where he made an impassioned plea, not only for the fact that he never said this, but more importantly, for his wife's honor. Not only did he make an impassioned plea, he broke down and cried. That's impassioned. Muskie said, I wasn't crying. They were simply snowflakes. (laughs) So Muskie's crying and people go, this is maybe not who we want to be dealing with China and Russia. (laughs) And of course, here's what comes out. The letter was fake. It was written by someone who worked in the offices of Creep. What is Creep? The Committee for the Re-election of the President. I was expecting it to be like, oh, it was like a smut magazine. Nope, nope, <laughs> nope. Oh my god! Nixon's and his people were so concerned that Muskie was an actual threat to him. They decided, let's see if there's a way we can make wow. him implode before he gets to the nomination because then we'll be be able to run against somebody who we can actually beat. And Muskie did exactly what they thought would happen, which is he imploded. He burst into tears saying that his wife was not a lush. So then it became, well, who's next? And, The person they looked to next was a guy named George McGovern. Now, George McGovern, like I said, was not only a senator from South Dakota, he was a war hero. He had a Ph.D. in history. He was a congressman. His biggest call to arms was food for the poor. And today we sort of look at him as the senator of modern liberalism. I think I could compare him probably to like a Bernie Sanders so if okay. you think like a Bernie Sanders type, that's what we're going for. The big thing, though, was he was very anti-war. He was very against the Vietnam War. And he was very anti-establishment. The establishment all wanted musky. So now they're kind of fucked up. But here's the thing. It wasn't just his philosophy that angered the establishment. It was something that McGovern created called... The McGovern Commission. In 1968, the Democratic Convention was a nightmare of a time, and McGovern created a commission to make sure that the same mistakes didn't happen again in the future. And what that did was it diminished the power and clout of established Democrats. So they were so pissed at McGovern for taking their power away, they vocally supported Richard Nixon in the general election. Wow. McGovern ran, though, if he wasn't establishment, was this is so Bernie Sanders, a grassroots campaign. And his campaign was run by a guy named Gary Hart. Gary Hart's idea of, let's make this a grassroots campaign. This is a campaign of the people. That's going to get us to the nomination. Great. Makes sense. Except there was a little bit of a problem. Very soon after it was clear that McGovern was probably going to get the nomination, there was a very famous columnist named Robert Novak, a very conservative columnist named Robert Novak. And he decided to write a newspaper article asking Democratic senators, hey— This anti-establishment candidate is going to probably be the nominee for president. What do you think about that? And in his newspaper column, Novak said on April 27th, quote, One liberal senator feels McGovern's surging popularity depends on public ignorance of his acknowledged public positions. This senator, who said, I don't want to get named, don't name me, (laughs) said, quote, What the people don't know, McGovern is for amnesty. That means all the draft dodgers get cleared abortion, and legalization of pot. Once Middle America, Catholic Middle America in particular, find out, he's dead. So with that, McGovern became what was known as AAA. He was the AAA candidate. Amnesty, abortion, and acid. Oh, and this God. And is, this is somebody from his own party. This isn't a Republican. This is a Democrat who's like, I don't want to go on record, but this guy is triple AAA. Hubert Humphrey, who was still in the race in the primary, started to use the triple A against McGovern. Now, this was a miracle because someone in McGovern's own party was saying the obvious. McGovern will split his party if he is the nominee, meaning Nixon is bound to win re-election. Nixon, don't even bother moving out. You're going to stay. Was there a way to even beat Richard Nixon if George McGovern was the nominee? And the answer is yes. Yes. There was. Okay, today it's very hard to imagine that the vice presidential candidate would be someone who was not picked out before the convention. But many times back in the olden days, the vice president was an afterthought because, once again, the position really had no sway. The logic of picking a vice president is always one of balance. The vice president has to give the ticket something that it does not have. Harris gave Biden diversity, Pence gave Trump morality, etc. The only time it's ever really broken the mold was Clinton Gore, because Clinton and Gore were both from the same region, of the same age, with the same philosophy. That was the only time it sort of is like broken the mold. Gore apparently. created the internet, though. and he created the internet. Like all presidential campaigns, the McGovern campaign began to look at polling, and it was clear that there was one way that McGovern was going to win in seventy-two against Nixon, if the ticket was McGovern Kennedy. Yes, Ted Kennedy is vice president. Yes, he killed a woman, but his family had suffered so much. He's going to be vice president. (laughs) And he was Catholic, and he was establishment. Okay, we might be able to pull this off if Kennedy joins us. Now, let's go to Miami, 1972- for the Democratic National Convention, do you have your shorts? I And my beach towel. Ooh. So we know how primaries work now. The primary candidate who gets the most primary votes gets those delegates from the state, and that person is then the nominee. But what if you've pissed off a lot of your party? Maybe they don't want to make it so easy for you. And that's what they did to say, fuck you, George McGovern. The entire campaign pretty much narrowed down to the question of, California's 271 delegates who owned the delegates McGovern had captured all of them in the June primary because California is a winner-take-all state but as the party's credentials committee met met in Washington they formed a stop McGovern coalition they succeeded in nullifying California's winner-take-all rule and that stripped McGovern of 151 delegates sending the fight to the convention floor meaning We're going into the convention and we don't know who the candidate's going to be, which was not Uh. uncommon for a long time. But at this point, we've sort of gotten over that. But either way, it's sending a message to the electorate, not even the person's own political party wants them. Eventually, McGovern did get the nomination and he's like, this is fine, but it's going to be in great shape because once we get Kennedy on board, then it'll be smooth sailing. Except Kennedy was sailing in a yacht, not at the convention. He did not want to be the vice president. And so McGovern's team was like, we haven't really thought of anybody else because we kind of always assumed Ted Kennedy would do this. Kennedy said, nope. He's like, you should look at either Wilbur Mills or the Boston mayor, Kevin White. McGovern was like, "Uh, no. So he went to Hubert Humphrey, who was the vice president under Lyndon Johnson. And Hubert Humphrey said, nope, this job's not for me. I'm done. (laughs) So in less than 24 hours, Even less than that, I should say. A vice president had to be named. McGovern said, listen, I'm looking for a man, sometimes a woman, I'm looking for a man. It's on Craigslist. It's on Craigslist. uh, MSM, who had identification with urban affairs, had ability, the stature to assume the presidency, and a national rather than a regional appeal. Catholicism was understood to be helpful, if not vital. So, within a few hours, a very narrow list was created, that, and on it was the Chief of the DNC, Lawrence O'Brien, French Ambassador Sergeant Shriver, Boston Mayor Kevin White, Wisconsin Governor Pat Lucy, Connecticut Se- Senator Abraham Ribicoff, Minnesota Senator Walter Mondale, and Missouri Senator Tom Eagleton. Eagleton all the way at the end of that list. By 12.30 p.m., Mondale, Ribicoff, Wisconsin Senator Gaylord Nelson, and Kevin White all said no. So, McGovern's like, I need to name someone in like two hours to be the vice president on this ticket. Can we think of anybody? And somebody said, what if you looked at Thomas Eagleton? So at three (sighs) o'clock, they called up Thomas Eagleton and said, do you want to be the vice president? Now, Eagleton had been going around telling everybody he wanted to be the vice president. And he's like, if if George McGovern wants me, I'm available. So he was the 10th down on the list and he kind of accomplished everything that McGovern was looking for. He was bright. He was young. He was 42 years old. He was on a border state. He was Catholic. He had very strong ties to labor. And when McGovern called him, the first thing Eagleton said to him was, George, before you change your mind, I accept. What state was Eagleton from? Missouri. Missouri, thank you. Yeah, Missouri. And at 1.40 a.m., because it had taken so long for all of this to happen. At 1.40 a.m., the ticket was finally slated, McGovern, Eagleton. And because it took so long, McGovern gave his acceptance speech at three o'clock in the morning.
3: It is thus with deep humility in the face of the responsibility you've asked me to assume, and with profound gratitude to you, the delegates, and of course to Senator McGovern, that I accept your nomination.
0: And it actually might have been good that people were sleeping because McGovern's first big choice as a presidential or I should say the first choice a presidential candidate makes it's huge is hiring the person to succeed him and run the country and with Thomas Eagleton we're going to have a few problems Who was Thomas Eagleton? Well, like I said, he was a young Missouri senator. He was 42. He was the youngest attorney general in Missouri history. He then was the lieutenant governor of Missouri. And when he was slated to run for the vice president, he was a first-term senator who was really only known for being fiercely anti-war. But his biggest assets were simple. McGovern had alienated big labor and working-class Catholics. Eagleton was a devout Catholic and very anti abortion he would win back the McGovern votes that McGovern had lost. Plus, if McGovern gets elected in 72 and 76, then in 80, Eagleton could run as a young man. This might work out quite well, except Uh for a phone call that came into McGovern's headquarters in South Dakota just a day or so after Eagleton was named the vice presidential candidate. The caller simply said, check on Senator Eagleton's background. He has a complicated medical background and hung up. What does that mean? Is he dying? Is he sick? So Gary Hart called Eagleton staff and said, we got this call. What does it mean? Would they look into and, and the Eagleton staff said, we'll look into it. But before Eagleton staff could really call Hart back and look into it, the McGovern campaign knew exactly what made his medical background so complicated. And in 1972, It was worse than a disease. Hell, FDR was elected four times with polio, and no one blinked when Eisenhower kept having heart attacks. But this was a medical condition that most of the country just didn't understand. Thomas Ingleton suffered from depression. And from 1960 to 1966, he checked himself into the hospital three times for nervous and physical exhaustion and received electroconvulsive therapy, electroshock therapy. And of course, this was during the height of the Cold War when everyone kept saying, whose finger do you want on the button? And did they want someone who they thought was mentally unstable? Because nobody seemed to understand how mental health worked back then. So let's do a little history on Thomas Eagleton's medical history. He had admitted himself to the hospital three times, 1960, 1964, and 1966. He was either, he either hospitalized himself in St. Louis or at the Mayo Clinic for nervous exhaustion. In 1960, this is before he became Attorney General, in 1960, he was hospitalized for shock treatments, and his father told people he was suffering from gastric disorders. In 1964, the same reason was given by his office when he went to the Mayo Clinic, and in 1966, he went back to the Mayo Clinic, but he said he was in Baltimore for gastric tests, each time for nervous and physical exhaustion, two out of the three times receiving electroshock therapy. Eventually, Eagleton admitted that, you know, these gastric test stories were a ploy because when you need rest, you need rest from the press. Is what he had said. And not understanding mental health, people began to look for what were the triggers, what caused him to be depressed. And a close friend of his who remained anonymous said he was always being pushed by his father. This may have contributed to his difficulties. You see, his father was once an unsuccessful candidate for mayor of St. Louis and they felt that Tom was pushing himself to make his father happy, and that's what led to the Depression. Also, he was the youngest everything, youngest city circuit attorney at 27, youngest state attorney general at 31, youngest lieutenant governor at 35. Now, when the McGovern camp learned that the newspapers were ready to break a story on Eagleton's medical history, McGovern and his running mate decided that they would break them the news themselves together at a press conference. They're going to get ahead of the story. And Eagleton said, listen, I'm an intense and hard-fighting person. I sometimes push myself too far, and I have every confidence that I've learned how to pace myself and know the limits of my own endurance. Now, McGovern, who was seated right next to Eagleton, was very quick to defend him and said, quote, I think Tom Eagleton is fully qualified in mind, body, and spirit to be the vice president of the United States and, if necessary, to take on the presidency at a moment's notice. McGovern also noted that when he asked Eagleton to be his running mate, he said, if he had any problems in his past that were significant or worth discussing with me, Eagleton said, nope. And McGovern (laughs) said, I agreed with that. And he said, if I had known every detail that discussed that he had discussed this morning, when Eagleton admitted that he had been in the hospital, he would have still been my choice for vice president. I stand by him a thousand percent. (laughs) Happy New Year, Ray. Happy New Year, Rob. Any resolutions? Yeah, to be more generous. You? Same. I wonder if any of our listeners wish to be more generous, too. Well, listeners, if generosity is on your resolution list, head on
2: over to Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and search for This Was a Thing and set a monthly donation. Even a dollar helps us. Your contributions help us continue doing what we're doing.
0: And if your resolution is to get rid of all your fatty foods and start a healthy diet, please mail me all fatty foods courtesy of the UPS store on Amsterdam Avenue. Stop that. Mm. May this year bring you happiness, health, and Howard the Duck. Miss Cleo foresees a wonderful year ahead. The cards don't lie. Now... The public has a thought or two in all of this. A secret poll of Democratic county leaders in Wisconsin, a very strong like McGovern state, found 38% of those interviewed believed Eagleton to be so serious a drag on the ticket that he should go. Wow, 38. 38. But that's a minority. Yeah. And in a poll carried out for Time magazine, 76.7% of those interviewed said that Eagleton's medical record would not affect their vote. At all. And when you think about it, his first hospitalization was in 1960 and he became attorney general in 1961. And the people of Missouri were never affected. Yeah. he, He had no problems doing any of those duties. yeah. Here's some interesting news footage of the the time period of people being interviewed about this.
3: A nationwide telephone poll conducted by the Albert Sindlinger organization indicated that among those persons who have discussed the Eagleton issue, 60% are sympathetic towards Eagleton. About 30% expressed a negative feeling towards Senator McGovern for being caught unaware.
0: Oh my God. So now McGovern didn't know what to do. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. But the inability to decide was not looking yes, good. not helping. Here was the thing that I don't think anyone could really figure out. Was there a concern that he had mental health issues? Was that the concern? Or was the concern that he didn't disclose that he had mental health issues? No matter what, people seem to have some sort of problem with it. Either one, that he had the mental health issues, which made them worry about him taking on the job, or that he did not disclose it to people. And major Democratic leaders told McGovern publicly and privately they would not vote for the ticket which made the unpopular mcgovern worry even more and you know how you can tell that this was really bad richard nixon told all of his staffers and campaign people he said don't bring this up as weaponry for us it's like don't he's like they're gonna bury themselves <laughs> he's yeah, like we don't need it he's like we don't need to add to it <laughs> can you imagine richard nixon being like oh no we have to have some sympathy <laughs> like mm, we're gonna cross a line. <laughs> Now, not long after the news of the hospitalizations broke, we're now going to have what's called the Jack Anderson problem. The next shoe was going to drop, and it was something some had heard of about Tom Eagleton, but never really had paid that much attention to, that he had had a very bad drinking problem. And the reason he disappeared quite often had nothing to do with mental health, but that he just simply needed to dry out. When he first arrived in Jefferson City, Missouri, the rural stodgy state capital, people were not really overly pleased with him because he was such a young up-and-comer. And And so, people started to spread rumors that he was a major alcoholic, even though there was no basis to the rumors. Now, this was just about all columnist Jack Anderson needed. And on his radio program, he said, quote, that a high-ranking Missouri official told him of Eagleton's countless encounters with the law being arrested for drunk." Now, when he was asked for proof, he had nothing, which meant Eagleton could take on Anderson. And that made Eagleton look incredibly tough.
3: Yes. Is there any fact or circumstance, however far-fetched, uh, that could be possibly a basis? I mean, were you ever stopped and questioned or made to walk I, down a line? Or I have there... never been stopped and questioned in any sense, with respect to alcohol, never asked to get out of the car and walk a line, or blow up a bag, or cough. You do that with your physician, I guess. (laughs) But um, uh, the answer to your question, sir, is an absolute unqualified
0: no. At every campaign stop Eagleton was asked whether he'd remain on the ticket and each time he was defiant and he kept saying, "Quote, I'm not quitting, I'm not getting out. We're going to win this election and I am going to be the next vice president of the United States." Now while Eagleton was projecting confidence, McGovern and his team were just quietly shitting themselves. They couldn't explain to press and party bosses because they didn't know what to explain or how to even explain it. Eagleton's medical team was not turning over anything and Eagleton felt that he did everything he needed to do. McGovern begged him to go on television and put the stories to rest and explain exactly what exactly he was suffering from. And Eagleton said, it's not the public's business, and I'm not going to put my family through that. So what we get now is sort of a two-faced George McGovern. So it was clear that a majority of the public did not care about Thomas Eagleton or his mental health issues. It did have doubts, though, about McGovern, and even McGovern felt he needed to do more, but. Not really. This is such a a, 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 a tangled web that's been weaved.
2: Just oh, absolutely. To, it's
0: just so much like, a, a, oh, my gosh. So McGovern wanted to know what exactly the issue was that was plaguing Thomas Eagleton. And could it really impact his leading in any capacity? So finally, Eagleton said, you can talk to my doctors. And McGovern was granted access to speak to his doctors. And we don't know what that conversation was. But the doctor said something that made McGovern go, oh, fuck. And how do we get rid of him, but still look like I haven't gone back on my word? Which was, I'll stand by you a thousand percent. So when McGovern went out and supported Eagleton publicly, he was holding secret meetings. with potential replacements for Eagleton. The governor of Wisconsin, the DNC chair. Eagleton's doctor. Eagleton's doctor. Are you interested? Yeah. (laughs) And the ambassador to France. McGovern felt good with these and always in the back of his mind was like Ted Kennedy will change his mind. And now he needed a way to drop Eagleton in a way that he could save face and look like a leader. He couldn't fire him. He can't fire anybody. And he knows the guy's depressed already. Yeah, come on, man. Of course... If Eagleton had left on his own, then it would be okay. So McGovern began to invite reporters in for interviews where he said things like, quote, "Uh, public reaction to the disclosure of Eagleton's past health problems has been so negative that Eagleton must withdraw voluntarily. Please. Please. (laughs) And and McGovern's credibility, which was the hallmark of his campaign, that he was the most credible, honest individual ever, because look at him. He was so anti-establishment. He'll tell it to the beep. He'll tell it to those that are in power that had been damaged. Now, the problem is what everyone is observing is that this is a man who wants to be leader of the free world and he cannot fire someone. <laughs> he cannot make a decision without feeling bad about it. Why not just look at Eagleton and say, you need to quit rather than sending him messages through reporters? Was McGovern trying to avoid firing this guy? Or was it perhaps that Eagleton was stronger than McGovern? Because every time McGovern called Eagleton, Eagleton said, hey, listen, you've told me numerous times, a thousand times that you're in my corner. Like, are you going back on your word? And defiantly, regardless of what McGovern said, Eagleton kept telling newsmen, I'm going to stay on the ticket. That's my firm, irrevocable intent. August 1st, 1972, 19 days after accepting the nomination for vice presidency, an impasse occurred between the two camps. But Eagleton was a smart man. If he stayed on, he'd always be blamed for sinking McGovern's campaign. And how would that play out in politics, right? He'd be known as the guy who who lost the presidency for George McGovern. Or he could be noble and say party over self, country over party, and step aside. Incredibly popular... And being seen as someone who was picked on, yes, but could also stand up for himself. So on August 1st, Eagleton flew to D.C., held a press conference and said, Ladies and gentlemen, I will not divide the Democratic Party. Therefore, tomorrow morning, I will write to the chairman of the Democratic Party, withdrawing my candidacy. This is Eagleton giving an interview immediately following his resignation. Senator Eagleton, at what point
3: in yesterday's events did you actually uh, throw in the towel? No, I didn't throw in the towel in the sense of of that cliche. Uh, yesterday was a very happy day for me, under all the circumstances. I received literally, literally dozens and dozens. I I would take I would guess over a hundred phone calls that I personally took. George McGovern could not have been finer. What did he say then, Senator? Oh, I don't. I, I, we didn't take down exact notes. He, he 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 expressed his confidence in me. He expressed uh, satisfaction that my health was adequate, but he pointed out and. An argument can be made on this uh, side that if I remain on the ticket, all the attention and all the debate would be about Eagleton, as George calls it, his past medical history. And it would take away from focusing on some problems that have to be attended to Vietnam War, (laughs) the economy, the credibility gap, et cetera, et cetera. Important issues that he must debate and should debate and need to be debated.
0: Now, another interview that they have here is uh, with his brother, who was a physician. I don't think it's
3: going to affect my brother's mental health one iota. He's, he no longer really has a health problem. He's, that's in the past. That hasn't had any problems for six years. I see no reason he should have any problems in the future. I think it may affect the mental health program in the United States. Uh, we've reverted back to the dark ages again.
0: And then this is McGovern discussing it. There was no way under the law that I could have forced Senator Eagleton to step down had
3: he not agreed to do so. And we talked about it. I told him it was my judgment that it was in the national interest that his medical history not become a major issue in this campaign. There were too many other serious issues that we needed to
0: discuss of the kind that we've been talking about uh, here today. I'm with you a thousand percent, but I'm not. And so they had to pick a replacement and they went with the former ambassador to France and the brother-in-law of John F. Kennedy Jr., that's Sergeant Shriver, and he joined the ticket, but it was too late. Even though Nixon was incredibly popular, you never know what it could have happened, I should say. And the first major decision McGovern made in the public eye was a disaster. How could you trust a leader whose first step was the wrong one? Nixon whipped McGovern's ass in the general election and went on to win the presidency for a second term. And of course, within two years, both Agnew and Nixon would have resigned disgrace. So what what was the aftermath of all this? Well, McGovern stayed in the Senate as did Eagleton, who won reelection twice more okay. as the senator of Missouri. People loved how strong he was. They felt he was abused by George McGovern. And at the end of the day, he was a damn good senator. For the rest of his time, he pushed for environmental issues, stopping the war, and uh, he created a bipartisan bill saying that abortion was not a right in the Constitution. He opted not to run again, and, and in 1987, he went back to Missouri, where he spent the rest of a li- his life as a professor, and then he died in 2007. Ah, yes, Ray, something else happened in 2007. Robert Novak, the columnist who quoted a Democratic senator as saying McGovern was A, amnesty, abortion, and acid, mm-hmm. finally revealed the name of the senator who said that. Who was the senator? Why it was the senator from the great state of Missouri? Thomas Eagleton. Oh my god. We'll be right back. This was a thing, this was a thing. And, and now a this is a stain. sketch. Ah, uh, Mr. McGovern, any word on who your new running mate will be? Yes, we have gone through every democrat imaginable and no one wants to be vice president. Republicans have Reagan, so why can't we have an actor too? So we looked for a candidate who would never have been in a hospital or had electroshock therapy, has never seen a therapist, nor has ever been on medication. Therefore, I am pleased to announce my running mate will be a gentleman from the great state of California, Mr. Droopy Dog. Uh, Mr. Droopy, you excited about being vice president? <sighs> Absolutely.
2: I've never been so happy.
0: Uh, you are fully vetted. You have no skeletons in your closet?
2: None whatsoever. I'm a cartoon dog. I don't even have a
0: closet for a skeleton. <laughs> Excuse me, Mr. Droopy. I used to be a journalist stationed in Moscow. And you look like the famous communist agitator Droopy Dog Yanevsky. Are you a communist spy, Droopy? Duh! <gasps> Foiled again! Shit! Foiled again!
2: Dermo.
0: Droopy Dog was sponsored by the Committee to Reelect the President and by Palm Olive. Wash your dirty money with Palm Olive. I use it. So should you. Thank you. This was a sketch. And we're back. The fact that the first nail in this coffin for George McGovern was the fact that somebody, that a senator called him triple A, and then the second nail was the fact that he had picked Thomas Eagleton, and Thomas Eagleton was the one who called him the triple A to begin with. Like, if this was revealed in West Wing, it, you would have been like... Oh, too much. Okay, Aaron. Too much. Well, it's interesting because West Wing covers... Some of the stuff that we're talking about here, which is, if you remember, you know, one of the big things in West Wing is the fact that President Bartlett, hopefully not a spoiler alert if you haven't seen the series yet, Uh he had MS and he did not disclose his MS. So the question is, is that something that people need to know? The vice president in the show, played by Tim Matheson, Matheson, is is an alcoholic and he did not admit that he was an alcoholic right at the beginning. So the question then becomes is like, what is exactly, what is knowledge for us, the people to have? And what is something that is private? There was some feeling that such criticism was unfair and that mental illness should be regarded like any other illness and not held against a man once he is quote unquote cured. Uh, Eagleton felt that the shock therapy cured him. What he'd suffered from nowadays, we would call bipolar too. He felt the electroshock therapy had cured that, but the matter of all of this raised profound questions about what America expects of its public people and of itself, and how do we define strength, and how do we define weakness? Now, the big thing that this led to was that the vetting of a vice president now is a massive exploration, with specific people brought on to lead the search. It is the first major decision a candidate makes, and the impact of such a poor decision is what hit McGovern. The Inability to make a decision, I think that's the finger on the button that people care about. No, oh, yeah. I was trying to think like other times where the the choosing of a vice president sort of had a very negative effect on a presidential candidate. I can think of two off the top of my head. One was 1984, when Mondale chose Geraldine Ferraro. Mm-hmm. Geraldine Ferraro was the first female on a major national ticket. She had gotten in some Issues with her husband and accounting. The big one that I can think of, though, is 2008 when McCain picked Sarah, Sarah Palin. Palin, because I think at that point when she came on and she was such a maverick, to, to say the least, <laughs> um, I think it, people were worried. I think that that worried a lot of individuals. So I don't know if that gained her gained McCain votes or if it lost McCain votes. The question then becomes. Is it the voters' right to know about the medical history of a candidate, specifically their mental health? So my question for you, Ray, and for our listeners is, was Thomas Eagleton in the right when McGovern said, is there anything I should know? And he said, no, there isn't. Do you feel like Eagleton did the right thing or do you feel like Eagleton should have said, I've had electroshock I therapy? I mean, I guess in my opinion, if
2: you're going to be a vice president to a president, you know, like I guess you should probably disclose that kind of stuff, you're gonna be one of the, the second highest in command. But my, if this is like an accounting job and an accounting firm, I don't feel like I'd have to tell
0: my boss like I have depression. Let's say that either like Kamala Harris or Mike Pence, yeah, suffered from depression, yeah. Oh, and had electroshock therapy. Do you think that it's our the public's right to know that. I don't think so. One of the big things that happens, obviously, and this was really seen in the, in the 2020 election year because both candidates were so much more older than a lot of other candidates, that there were constant, here's their physical yeah. report, here's their physical, here's their physical, here's their physical. My question is, is, do you think that if we're saying that physical health is equivalent to mental health, do you think that a mental health evaluation should also be made of the candidates and released to the public at the same time the physical is released? And if so, what does that look like? That's just a that's a tough question. I mean, I guess... Would you be concerned if either Joe Biden or Donald Trump said, I'm not going to release my medical records?
2: I mean, I would be curious why they're not releasing Or you them.
0: know what? I shouldn't even say Donald Trump and Joe Biden because that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the vice president. So if Mike Pence or Kamala Harris said, yeah, I'm not going to release mine. My... I mean,
2: that would make me be more curious and want to know why they don't want to
0: release it. Would that affect your vote?
2: I, I mean, I wouldn't be voting based on the vice president. You know, I mean, like, only solely vice president. But, I mean, I would want to know, and I would on- always be thinking, if I voted for that ticket, I would always be thinking, like, what is it that they don't want the public to know?
0: Okay, so let's imagine that Eagleton had stayed on the ticket yeah. in 1972. What do you think would have happened?
2: I mean, I feel like it might have opened up I don't know, dialogue more to talk about people having mental health issues earlier. I mean, it probably wouldn't have been that big, but, I mean, if people were honestly talk, You know, you said 76% of the people, so three-quarters of the United States said that didn't really care. So, I mean, that's that was shocking to me because that seemed like a big number for people that
0: didn't think that that would affect his job yeah i read that i thought i misread it yeah i thought they were i thought it said 77 percent of people did not want him i just think it could have been talked about more like you
2: know if he did get keep the nomination or if they won you know it could have been like okay i'm an advocate i don't know he could have been an advocate for mental health issues or it's Still, kind of taboo to talk about mental health issues, and it's and it's a huge. I mean, it's it's out more than ever,
0: but still, people are think it's a taboo issue. So, do you think if this situation arose today, it would be a different conversation? Absolutely. What I find really interesting in all this is that Richard Nixon said, "Do not politicize this." Yeah. Now, this is a guy who was breaking into other people's offices, sending out the canuck letter, <laughs> as as it got to be known, but said, "I have a boundary here." don't use this for political purposes, the fact that he has mental health issues. I I think that's admirable of Nixon to not do that. One of the things I found really interesting was they interviewed a a Democratic pundit at this time, and they said to him, you know, how do you feel about all this? And he goes, I have no problem that Thomas Eagleton went to a psychiatrist. He goes, we know what our people are dealing with. Can they say the same about their candidates? That's the thing, exactly. Now, if you're Thomas Eagleton, tell me about saying that this guy's triple A. And then saying, yeah, I'll be your vice president.
2: It's crazy, but it's not shocking. And it just seems like that's politics I, is backstabbing.
0: Yeah. Backstabbing, what, backstabbing. What I love in this story is that these guys both fucked each other. Oh, yeah. That McGovern fucked Eagleton. Eagleton guy, getting him off the ticket. And Eagleton fucked McGovern by saying this guy's not electable. Actually, this is interesting. Here's the clip from the TV show where Robert Novak admitted what was going on? Let me read another excerpt from the book, In Bob Shrum, I think you will be interested in this one. I had not been in touch with my source, Senator X, for 30 years. When I began working on these memoirs in 2003, I wrote him. Now Mr. X retired from the Senate, asking whether I could identify him. His answer was swift and succinct. Dear Bob, what I told you, it was off the record, and I still consider it that way. Well, since that time, Mr. X, Senator X, died, and he turned out to be Bob Novak.
2: Thomas Eagleton, His, uh, and uh, George McGovern outlived Thomas Eagleton by five years. So can you imagine when George? <laughs> so
0: George, um, big news, son of a bitch. <laughs> um, so that's the story of the Thomas Eagleton affair. That is insane. I never knew any of this. You know, it's one of those things where I remember hearing, well, he resigned, and, it, he, and I was like, why did he resign off the ticket? And then. I I did the research and I thought it's so interesting to me that the stigma that he had that forced him to resign was the fact that he had bipolar disorder. And what would that play like today in a contemporary political setting? And I think it's interesting how far that we've come, but still how far we need to go. But what I was so fascinated by was this idea that these two guys who were supposed to be, you know, were above politics, were better than politicians, literally Fucked each other over. That to me, when I found out that that it was Thomas Eagleton who had gave him the AAA title, my jaw hit the floor. My jaw hit the floor. I said, "You cannot write this. That it was Thomas Eagleton who said this guy's not going to be elected. It's the game of politics. That truly is. It's
2: quintessential politics." talk so much shit until you get an opportunity, and then you take that opportunity with every ounce you can. Speaking of games, Uh. (laughs) right? you want to play a game? Yeah, I did that segment on purpose.
1: This was a thing, and now it's a quiz. This is a This Was a Quiz,
2: with Mark Schroeder.
0: Mark, before I uh, lectured everybody on the world of Thomas Eagleton, have you ever heard about this guy? He
1: was... Vice presidential candidate for just a couple of weeks, right? Yeah, it's a sad story. I did not, I did not know about this, but uh, you really educated. It's unfortunate. He may be best remembered, he, of course, had to decline the vice presidential nomination because yes. he received treatment for depression, and that I think that stinks. I think that's really a big bummer. And yes, I think that we here at this was a thing. Fully support Frank and open talk about mental health, and yes. we encourage anyone Who's who feels Frank? that they need to help. But you know, Rob. Rob's crazy. Rob's straight-up loony. You don't have any, any chance at all. No, You're beyond God, hope. no. So many
0: doctors were like, oh, that's a lost cause. Rob yeah, is
1: insane. He that's your a callback. Back. <laughs> Better help. Gave you a refund. <laughs> uh, anyway, today we're going we're gonna to help further normalize the need for comprehensive mental health resources with a little game called... We all got a little screw loose.
0: Hey, I <laughs> okay. love that, okay. Uh,
1: you guys are going to work together in this game. I'm going to list a celebrity, and Robin Ray, all you have to do is tell me, true or false, if this celebrity has ever openly addressed their struggles with mental health. Okay. That's all you have to do. We're working together? Together. Number one, Howie Mandel. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, that's obsessive compulsive disorder, attention deficit hyperactive disorder, and depression is with Howie Mandel. Uh, number two, Lizzo. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, that is correct. That's anxiety and depression. She's been very open with. Uh, number three, Selena Gomez. I feel like yeah. I'm gonna say no. That's a yes. That's uh, anxiety and depression there for Selena Gomez. That's why we connect. What about Mariah Carey? No, definitely not. Never. Bipolar disorder for really? Mariah Carey. She's wow. Really? Wow. Very open about bipolar. Good for you, Mariah. What about Kristen Bell? Frozen Elsa herself, I think. No, she's not Elsa. No. I feel like she. I want to say no. Okay. That's a yes. That's anxiety and depression for old Kristen Bell. She's just so relatable. Right? We just feel like we are her. How about old Pete Davidson? Oh, yeah. Oh, no, God, yeah. Yes, that's borderline personality disorder. That's his whole he is personality his 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 disorder. Entirely it just it's... got
2: released that he's in treatment for online harassment from the, all the Kanye wishes.
1: <laughs> oh, no. Jesus, this and poor He's God. responding to people's comments? No, just oh, all he, the, from the effect of Yeah, the from treatment. the effect oh. just because of I all the attacks that he's getting oh, from he all the fucking fucking Kanye he was going on the offensive stuff. and they were like, yeah, this. yeah. Oh, that's tough. Uh, Lady Gaga. Yes, yes. Yeah. That is post-traumatic stress disorder. She's been very open with. Oh, no. Amanda Seyfried. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's OCD for Amanda Seyfried. Obsessive-compulsive disorder for Amanda. Bruce Springsteen. Mm. Yes, I feel like the boss would say yes. He's been very open about depression. Yes, he's, he's the boss. He's, he's experienced depression. I'm sad, man. Yeah, I'm totally sad. Brad Pitt. Yeah. He's 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 woke. Yes, he has. Uh, yes, he has uh, mm-hmm. talked about his depression. Catherine Zeta-Jones' depression is an incredible job. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. She had bipolar two disorders, which she she uh, was diagnosed with. About well, Dwayne the Rock Johnson, he seems like he would. Yeah, that's a yes as well. That's uh, depression for Dwayne the Rock Johnson. John Hamm, Don Draper himself, Mr. John. Hamm. Not with that
2: cock? But. <laughs> I mean, he's got anything to be. I don't
0: know what the problem is. He's got a honey baked ham in those pants.
1: But uh, yeah. yes, yes, he, he struggles. He has, he has uh, struggled with depression. How about Chrissy Teigen? Oh yeah, the uh, postpartum depression. She's been very open and frank with her postpartum depression. Wayne Brady, fun yeah, loving oh, so. comic yeah. guy. On uh, I think nice so. so. Yes, everyone uh, with depression. And Emma Stone. Yeah. Bitches she would be. Yes, she's experienced some, some anxiety. So what are we learning today, folks? It's good to talk it's about mental health. It's good to just health. talk about it and be open with it. So, and you're not alone. You're not alone. You're right there with Selena Gomez and Pete <laughs> Davidson. So, I've got Mark and Rob. Yeah. Right? We're all here together Sorry, as friends. Just take our shirts off. Why do you always want to do that? Because it... I, how is that going to
0: help your depression? Because it just makes me happy. He's got tearaway clothes. Look. Oh, wow. Yeah. That was fast.
1: Wow, man. That is And fast. yes, the piercing is new. Yeah. it's gonna. Oh, boy. Oh, it's a whole body. It's, it's uh, that's a spine wrapped around a navel. Yeah. Just a that is a lot of pus. Yeah.
2: Well, it was a day thing. but it was you know, a lot of pus. So buy one, get one thing. So, oh. so
0: friends, we're going to get uh, Ray over to an urgent care. And while we're doing that, hope you'll check out the Instagram at uh, thiswasathingpod or head over to our website, www.thiswasathing.com. Or if you like what we're doing, uh, go on to Patreon and give us some money. Especially because we got to get Ray some medicine. It right, looks like. Please.
2: Thanks for listening to this was a thing, and a big thanks to the folks that keep this show running. Our editor, Daniel Cutcut Schwartzberg. Our composer, Billy Better Than DC Reesey. Our social media director, Gabe Hashtag Crawford. Our graphic designer, Natalie's Nothing Too Graphic, Desavia, Savia. And finally, our games coordinator, Mark the Shark Schroeder. If you liked what we did today, make sure to head on over to iTunes to rate and review us. The more stars you leave us, the more love we feel. Hey, speaking of love, show us some social media love. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at ThisWasAThingPod, and Facebook we are ThisWasAThingPodcast. Reach out, we'd love to hear from you. And if you really liked what we did today, head on over to Patreon.com and become one of our sponsors, and you'll get access to special episodes, interviews, and merch. That's Patreon. Search This Was A Thing and support us so we can keep doing this show.